everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. Julie, what is up? It's a high of 56 degrees today and I'm freezing. Hell no. What is it for you? We want the high or the current? <laughs> I guess for context, it's 11 a.m. Good my point. time. It is 90 Fahrenheit, which I could have converted to Celsius, but I can't right the second. So it's hot. It's very hot, <laughs> but it feels nice outside. I was outside coding on the porch earlier. I cannot code outside with my computer right now. I'm cold inside the house. So there's that. Yeah, I can't stand being cold. That's why I moved to a desert. It was literally one of the top reasons, which people kept asking. I just got back from RailsCon. People kept asking me, why did you move to Arizona? And I'm like, tired of being cold. Tired of being cold and tired of being hit by hurricanes. Yeah. What is the coldest that it gets there? If you drive like an hour or two, you're in the mountains. So like it's Uh snowing up there. I don't remember it ever getting below freezing. So usually like in the winter, it's like in the 50s, which is what it is for you right now. Yeah. Well, it was just weird because just a few days ago it was like high 80s for us. So the sudden change is kind of affecting me. But anyway, today is very exciting because we have a special guest, Megan Brown. Welcome to the show. Megan, would you like to give a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm Megan Brown. Julie is my mentor and I'm learning how to code which is really exciting. And I started off studying psychology in college and only toward the end of my college years did I discover computer science and how fun that is. And so I ended up going in to tech and working as a PM and then working as a UX researcher. And now I'm finally getting back into learning how to code again and taking some grad school classes. That's cool. I tried to convince some of my psych friends in college that they should do UX. And one of them actually, she was like, getting into it and we were starting to build projects together but then she had a kid and i haven't heard from her since but that's cool how do you think the psychology helps you like just diving straight in here how do you think like the psychology helps with like ux design i think psychology is really helpful because it helped with the research side of things for me i think learning psychology in university taught me about how to design studies and how to not have very much bias and how to connect with different people across the lifespan, different ages, different regions, things like that. How did you meet Julie? I met Julie through Josh, actually, who was on the show before. So I was talking to Josh when I was considering going back to school for computer science. And I was interested in finding someone who wanted to mentor me, who was someone who might be familiar with a career change and just excited to be a mentor. And I know Josh does a lot of mentoring and I was like, maybe he knows someone who wants to do this. And so he introduced me to Julie. I'm curious how the road from project manager to UX kind of happened for you. Because I've seen a lot of people do it the other way around. Yeah. So I was a product manager and I assumed the role that I was going into would have more UX than it actually had. But I think that's okay. I think it was a good learning experience. I was really excited to start working out of college and... My first role, I got exposed to more of the business side of things, bug triage and all of that and endpoint management and writing specs for features and all that. And I think I really wanted to be working on something that could let me use my psychology side and connect with people and make sure we're making experiences that are a good fit for people. And I got to do that a little bit, but I noticed that there were some times where they would want people to focus more on the execution than on figuring out if 
this experience is a good match for our customers. And so I think that's what motivated me to continue trying to do UX and to try to get opportunities to work with researchers. And so I eventually found this opportunity to spend three months on our user research team. And that was a really great experience because it's one thing to be trying it on your own, but then it's another to have experts who are around you to help you grow and see where you can use some help that's maybe a blind spot for you. So I really liked that. And that helped me transition. Can you go into a little bit more about what UX research is? Yeah. I don't know if I'm the best person to give a definition, but essentially you want to make sure that whatever experiences you're making are a good fit for the people that you're designing them for. Does it match their needs? Is this a real problem that they have? And then once you figure that out, is this a solution that's going to be a good fit for them? And then once you have a solution that's a good fit, is this usable? Can they use it? What are the barriers that they're currently having? So you just make it overall fit them and make it a good experience. And so UX research comes into play when you're trying to understand your customers, understand their needs and figure out what should we make and how should we make it. How are UX and UI designers different? I probably can't speak for designers because I think there's a lot of overlap in this field. I think a lot of UI designers have UX skills and UX designers have UI skills. But people consider UX to be more of the behaviors of the app often and the overall experience. And people consider UI or the user interface to be what are the buttons? What does it look like? What's the visual design? I would rather have a designer explain that. Right. What do you think the value is in having both? I got really into UI UX design. Still am, but it torments me. That's not the point of this episode though. Like when I was first coming up, it was kind of like UX slash UI. And now it's much more of a like UX, UI. They are different, right? And you sometimes people are like, yeah, we definitely need both. And other people are like, no, we can have one person do both. What do you think the value is in having people dedicated specifically to UX and not have it be them as your UI designers as well? Well, I can speak to UX research. I think research is really its own discipline because you have to know how to conduct a study without biasing people. You have to know how to recruit participants that are a good match for what you're looking for. And so I think it really is its own discipline. But I always think it's good when people of specific disciplines can learn something of someone else's discipline so that we can just work better together. So being able to spot when UI issues come up in a research study is really helpful. So I think just kind of being well-rounded or like T-shaped across UX and UI and then going deep in a specific discipline is really helpful. I guess, how might it be useful for somebody like me to learn a little bit more about UX research? Well, first, you probably care about the product you're making. And so you probably care about making a good experience. I think UX researchers and engineers have a lot in common in that they want to make a really great product. And I often hear that engineers have a lot of wiggle room in terms of what they're building and how they make it flexible, because sometimes you don't always get that one-on-one connection every time with your PM or your designer. And so knowing what drives your users and what their future needs are and what their current needs are is probably really helpful for figuring out how to plan the feature that you're working on. And then probably also for personal projects, it could be fun if you want to make a project you're really proud of, something that is a good fit for the people that you want to help. It could be good to do some research about what are their problems that they're encountering, 
what would be a good solution for them and continually testing the project that you're working on with them to see if you're making improvements in the right direction. I think it would also be good for engineers know how to conduct their own research. I think often maybe you're on a startup or you're on a smaller team and you want to have a customer connection. And I think it's good to know what are the steps you can take to do that. So you could break it down by where you are in the phase of the project. If you're at the very beginning of it, I think it's helpful to test, are we solving the right problem? And you can do this by getting people to first start talking about the context that they're in. And sometimes they'll organically bring up problems to you. And then you could ask them about what are some of their biggest challenges in this or what's been a frustration. And then they'll organically talk more about that without you leading them to say, hey, I think this is a problem. Is this your problem? And then you can have them rate how much of a frustration that is from one to 10, or you could call it a pain point. And then you could ask them about possible solutions that they think would be helpful, but don't just take what they have to say as the solution to go for. You should ask, why would that be helpful? And sometimes that can help you figure out a good design strategy. And then you can also go ahead and test the concepts that you're thinking about by then showing them your concept, having them walk through it and think their thoughts aloud and giving you some general emotional feedback of like, oh, I would give this smiley face or a neutral face or a frown face and explaining why and what's missing, what's good, what's bad about it. Just kind of asking about the whole experience. So that would be helpful to figure out, are we making something that's on the right track with what they need? And then another type that you could do is more of a usability study where you already know that you're making something that people want. And the next step is to put this in front of them and see, is this something that they can use? Again, it's good to just have them talking and comfortable, giving you some context and then go through what the experience is and have them think their thoughts aloud. Usually they have some sort of goal you're giving them. Like you're trying to learn Java using Codecademy. Show me how you would do that and think your thoughts loud. And then at the very end, you could debrief and talk about some of the challenging points they had and what was confusing and things like that. And that can help you figure out how to fine tune the experience so it's better. Hey there, I'm Andrew Mason, and I've got an amazing gem to tell you about, Avo. It helps you build content management systems and internal tools with Ruby on Rails incredibly fast. You don't need to deal with any CSS or JavaScript files as Avo takes care of all the UI work for you resulting in a modern, mobile-first CRUD interface ready to deploy. Plus, it provides access to features almost every application needs, like actions, filters, search, sorting, active storage integration, dashboards, and much more. So if you're looking for an ultra-powerful and maintainable platform to build your next product or service, look no further. Avo harnesses the power of Rails, Hotwire, Tailwind CSS, view components to provide you with a fast and easy-use stack the Rails way. Don't wait any longer. Visit avohq.io and give Avo a try today. You won't regret it. I have done some user research in the past, but not as a developer. And I just like all of these things are kind of coming back to me. And I never really thought about applying it to what I do now. I don't know why, but it's so helpful for you to kind of walk through all of this and kind of bringing it back. Thanks for sharing that. I was just curious, now that it's coming back to you, I was just wondering how you could see user research showing up in your projects or in your work. Yeah. And I think that because we have a designer on the team who handles that all for us, some of the questions that I have in my mind are like, 
would users really need a function that we think is going to be helpful to them? We should just get the user to let us know, should we even build this out? Are they going to actually use it or is it going to be a problem for them? Another example we were working on is cluttering our page with links. Like if it would be helpful to have links on the page that will direct the user somewhere, but what if having a bunch of links on the page is going to be too overwhelming or they just gloss over and don't use it? Whatever the case is, but yeah, those are just a couple of examples that I was thinking that we could either avoid work or make something that the user would actually use. I got one for you. Hmm. This one's a little more complicated. This one, if we had done user research, we would have been able to make a better decision and not had to like waffle on it for a while. So we have a page and you can do all this stuff. You can filter things. It's really complex and complicated and turbo-y and so fine, so magical. Just splashes of magic. And all of a sudden, I'm like implementing a new feature on it. It's going great. Things are awesome. And then someone on the team goes, yeah, but what happens if the user is working on this page in one tab and this page in another tab. Because if there were changes on one page and then you had unsaved changes in the other page, (laughs) changes to the first page would not reflect on the second page until you reloaded, right? Until the server came back and refreshed everything. And so then we became this massive rabbit hole. Okay, well, how important is it that people are working on two different tabs? Like, when are they going to like expect this? Why wouldn't they just navigate like blah, blah, blah. And like, we had no idea. So we ended up having to spend extra time to make sure that there was a solution for that. But now we could have wasted a week or two. We have no idea. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people can assume that they know what the user wants and all of your teammates assume this. I don't know. I don't know what the situation is, but you can get into those situations where everyone's arguing over what the right solution is. And sometimes it's just helpful to take it back to your customers and see what their thoughts are because... Often we have different lived experiences than our customer base. So what would you say to the engineer? He's got his RGB water bottle and his RGB lights and his RGB everything. And he's like, I know what the users want. I don't need UX. I'm in the early stages of this. Why does that matter? What would you say to that person? Yeah, well, also, I think it depends on the product that you're working on. If you're designing something just for yourself, like you're designing a to-do list app just for you, maybe you do know your user or you're designing something for engineers. But I think it's really helpful to take it back to your customers because as much as we can, it's great to reduce risk in the very beginning because you don't want to build something out that no one uses and then have that work go to waste. You'd want to make sure you're building something small and testing it with users and making sure you're going in a direction that's sustainable to keep your company going and products that people like. Very interesting because I was creating this side project for me to use. And as I'm building this thing, I'm like, oh yeah, I think I'm going to want this and that and this. And then when I actually went to go and use it, I'm like, oh wait, no, I don't. (laughs) So even like my own building it for myself, I still disagreed with my past self. Yeah, maybe you should ask yourself up front, like, what's the core problem here to get to the core of it? So now you're learning to code. Let's talk about that journey a little bit. How did that start? Yeah, I was lucky enough to get introduced to the Grace Hopper conference when I was working at Microsoft. And I was really glad that they let PMs go because often it's engineers who get to go. And that was really inspiring. I thought the security talks were really interesting And some of the front end stuff was cool. And so I think I always had it in the back of my mind. This is something that I want to do. And then as a PM, 
there'd be hackathons or opportunities where I could prototype something just as a proof of concept. And I really enjoyed that. And so I think I've been wanting to do this for a while and it was hard to learn this while working. And maybe I could have, but I really am glad to be going to a grad school program that helps transition people in their careers. So you're in school for computer science. Yeah. At first, I started off trying to learn with Udemy resources and Codecademy and mentors. And I think I was having a little bit of trouble there getting stuck in the tutorial phase. And so it was really helpful to just go into a grad school program. What have been the best courses you've taken so far? Well, I've only completed the first one so far. So that's intensive foundations in computer science. And it was really great. I liked the way it was structured because each homework would have four points and you would submit your homework to this auto grader and it would just test you on these different levels of, oh, are you passing these syntax issues and are you meeting the needs for these functions and then hand graded for, is it designed well? So I really liked that. And I think getting into a habit of coding every day was really helpful. And then having these challenges and focusing more on the coding than on the tutorials was helpful. What language are you learning in school or what are they doing in school? Well, we started with Python and that was a lot of fun for me. And I built a game that Julia's seen, which is a text-based adventure game. And now I'm moving on to a summer class where we're learning object-oriented programming in Java. And I think they just want to give us exposure to a bunch of different types of languages. So there's C after that. And then I could take like a mobile app class or a web class. Nice. I was just curious. My brother texted me. My brother is in school for computer science right now. And he texted me right before this episode. And he said, do you think I should learn Ruby over the summer or try to master Java? Because at Alabama, they're trying to teach me C. And I was like... (laughs) I don't know, brother. (laughs) Java is interesting because they give you Java so you understand object-oriented programming. I did not understand object-oriented programming until I learned Ruby. And then I was like, oh, now I get it. (laughs) Do you know why that is? Because Java is so terse. You have to write out all your getters and setters. And in Ruby, it's implicit. So like, if I have an object, it's implied that I can get and set the value of that object, where in Java, it's not. And you have to specifically set that stuff. And it's a lot more verbose and it's typed and it's boilerplate and it's enterprise-y. And it's, but it is like a great language. To me, Java is like hard mode. You go take Java and you're like, holy crap, programming sucks. Ever want to do this ever? That's great that they gave you Python too, because with Python, you're like, oh my God, this is fun. I can build stuff. Like I can use the turtles modules and like I can build games and like, it's so cool. And you can do like math and there's a lot of statistics and stuff like that. Then you go to Java and you're like, holy crap, programming sucks. And then once you're out of Java, once you learn Java, I feel like you can learn almost anything. And a lot of languages become a lot easier because now you understand like how hard they can be. <laughs> so I think learning Ruby after Java, I was like, number one, angry because I was like, holy crap, this entire time I could have not been writing Java. I had no idea. I was literally at that point, I don't think I'm going to be a programmer. Like I can't write Java my whole life. This is ridiculous. And then they're like, hey, Ruby. And I was like, oh, sweet. I can do this. I think because I'd have Java, I had a lot more appreciation for Ruby, but it was also like, because I had learned like how things were actually happening under the hood because of Java, like, because I had to write all those getters and setters, I can understand more of what's happening under the hood of Ruby because I know what's happening kind of in the virtual machine. Andrew, I think I forgot, but what's your first programming language? Visual Basic in high school. Well, I learned HTML and CSS when I was a kid, but 
I did Visual Basic and then I went Java and then I went Python in college, then Java, then PHP, I think. I never took any of the Cs. Did Fortran. It's the old one. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that was my problem where I learned a language. I think it was C++. I learned that first and failed through my first course and never looked at it for a decade until I got back into it again. Yeah, I think it's just more fun when you can get started a little faster and understand how things work and not feel like you're having to wade through a bunch of things that are really verbose. The Java is very verbose. So that's why I like that they start with Python now. Like, because I took Java in high school. That's ridiculous. Python is a lot more fun to write. And Python, I think, is a lot more similar to Ruby. So I feel like I could go write Django apps if I needed to, if Rails suddenly became dead. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime should not be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with HoneyBadger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Get started today in as little as five minutes at HoneyBadger.io with plans starting at free. Yeah, you heard me, free. A big thank you to Honey Badger for sponsoring this episode of Ruby for All. Um, so I have a question about career advice, actually. I think it's really fun to make mobile apps. I mean, just from being in UX, I thought mobile apps are really fun. And I think web is also really fun. And the visual design, you can do a lot there. And so I was wondering, what do you think is good for someone who is excited about both mobile and web? If I had to do it all over again, I'd be a mobile developer. Why? I feel like the world is trending in that direction. I feel like I could make bajillions if I could like write really good Swift code. So I think there's a lot of value in both. And there's the ability now, like with the way PWAs are going with, I don't know what it stands for, something web app. But like the other day, I enabled like an experimental API on my phone and installed like a web app on the home screen and it was able to trigger notifications. Oh, wait. So you're saying the PWA is like a web app that you create, but you can... Progressive web app. That's what it's called. Progressive web app. Yeah. So if you ever run like Google Lighthouse, it'll actually test for like your progressive web app stuff. And that's basically like the ability for it to like work offline. And it uses like workers and all this other crap. I don't know. I haven't really dove super deep into that side. I know you can turn a Rails app into a PWA because I saw RailsConf talk about it, not this year, but in the past. But the point of all of this is like, more people have phones that have internet access than have computers. And I think it's only going to continue trending that way because it's a lot more accessible and cheap for someone to get a phone with an internet connection than a computer. So I think mobile is only going to continue increasing. And I see a lot of opportunities in mobile. I also see a lot of solo developers doing mobile stuff who are making a great living, making cool stuff that they're interested in. So if anything, it's just jealousy. But you can do both. And like Rails is like coming out with more and more stuff to like allow that to happen. And so I think there's value in both. And I think it's really like you kind of have to decide like, what do you find more interesting? Would you rather write apps on the web and make them like universal? Or would you rather build stuff on mobile, which is a lot more constrained. There's a lot more constraints. You can't do as much, but I think that's almost a benefit too. I really like mobile because I feel like from a UX perspective, they have to get to the core of what users really want and get rid of all the excess that someone like you really can't fit a bunch of features all on one page there. 
I just think it's really clean experience. I love mobile as well. It's more challenging, I think, in a way. And that's kind of what makes it fun. So can you not do both mobile and web as a professional? Yeah. Usually I see people do one or the other, unless you're doing what I'm talking about, where it's more of like a hybrid experience. But because if you're writing mobile apps, unless you're drinking the React Native Kool-Aid, which in 2023, I can't believe you still are. But unless you're like drinking the Kool-Aid of something that's like, hey, just write it this way and then it'll work everywhere on all the mobile places and you want to write native code, which is a lie. At some point, you're going to have to write native code for these platforms. And so you have Swift and you have Kotlin. And I think Kotlin's what Google is still using. But there's all these languages you have to write to run things on their hardware. And there's really not a great solution. There's no way you're going to get away with not writing any native code. So like, no matter what, I think if you're going to write a hybrid experience, you're going to have to write some native code. But I think you can just choose like, hey, I would rather just write native code to begin with and that'd be my specialty. Because otherwise you're dealing with a vast variety of languages, right? If you have a Rails backend, then you've got your Rails code and then maybe there's a front end for that. And if you're doing a PWA where it's like you install it on the phone, then it's like the whole headers and things and stuff flying around the Ethernet. Or you could just write it in their language the way they want you to. And it just kind of works. It's a lot stickier to do it in a non-native way right now. Maybe that'll change. But right now, I saw a lot of people were like, hey, just write React Native and then it'll work everywhere. But that didn't turn out to be as true as the promise, I think, which is fair. It's really hard to do that, to have something work in Swift and then in Kotlin and all these other languages and all these other frameworks. And they all have their own restrictions on what you can do in this store and what you can't do. And so because it's almost very important to like know all these things, it's kind of hard, I would think, to keep balancing both. Okay, so I have another question for both of you, which is, what do you think is a good strategy for someone who wants to become a mobile developer with a university degree and without a university degree? What are the different paths for that? We are not mobile developers, so I can't tell you how to get into it. I think with anything, you have to just start building. Because maybe like you start writing mobile apps, you're like, holy crap, this is not the way I like to think. I like to think in the web. And if that turns out to be true, then no harm, no foul, right? You just continue on your way. So I think there's a lot of value, kind of what Julie was hinting at earlier. Like You don't have to sink all your eggs in one basket. You can learn both and be good at both and then choose one that you like the most to specialize in. So the degree gives you connections, really. And that's about it for me anyway. But you're in grad school, so that's like, upper level. So maybe it's more helpful up there. But at the end of the day, the degree gives you connections. And then you use those connections to find companies. For me, it was internships. It's like, hey, I just want to come see what's going on here. Get your hands in the code, see what they're doing day to day. And then again, you may realize, holy crap, don't want to do this, which is again, no harm, no foul, because it's not like you've committed your life to it at that point. So apprenticeships, internships, even like asking to like shadow like a programmer for a day, I feel like is a completely reasonable thing to ask. So that's how I would kind of do it. Andrew, is there anything stopping you from going forward with learning Swift more and creating mobile lazy, apps? Lazy, <laughs> laziness. Now I have been learning more Swift, but I haven't like fully committed to it because if I fully committed to it, I would be able to do it. Busyness, really. <laughs> excuses. I just have excuses. That's all. And I like Rails. I like the web. It's where I'm comfortable. And for me, like the apps that I want to write are like for me. So I don't really have this grand plan of, oh, I'll become a mobile developer and then I'll make bajillions on all these things. It's more like I have app ideas for things I want to accomplish. 
And maybe I can just build those for myself. And maybe those turn into something and maybe they don't. And it's fine. Well, we are almost at time. Megan, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't? So I think what building projects is like as a beginner and what Python is like and things like that, learning Git. What is Python like? I really enjoyed it. I felt like it was very similar to how I would speak. And so Mm -hmm. I think it got me up and running a little bit quicker. And I think doing it in a class helped me learn, like design it in an object-oriented way. And so I just got a little bit more practice doing that for my project. Nice. Yeah. If you like Python, then Ruby's perfect. Ruby feels like easier Python to me. So Megan calls me her mentor, but I feel like it's more of a collaborative relationship because... Which is what being a mentor is if you listen to our last episode. (laughs) Megan's actually really great at just being prepared. Like every time we come to meetings, she knows exactly what we're going to talk about, which makes it really helpful. And she comes with questions and everything that she has created. I feel like she knows more than she claims through her code. So yeah, when you're showing me your text adventure game, you had all of these things inside the methods that have the comments. You had notes for everything. It was very clear. You walked me through your code and you like knew exactly what your game was doing. It just felt like you were more seasoned. You only took one computer science class. The things that you're showing me, I just feel like you've been doing this for a while and it makes me feel like you could be ready soon. So just keep up what you're doing. I love coming to our sessions and seeing how prepared you are. Like, I just love me not having to come up with things like as a mentor and as somebody who doesn't plan for things, it's really hard for me to show up and be there for you. But I feel like you are doing the bulk of the work and I don't have to do as much. I'm showing up and answering your questions and helping any way that I can. But like, I think whatever a mentee is, like you got that. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I can share more about like how I think about coming prepared. I think we meet every two weeks and I'll try to be coding as much as I can during that time. And if I can't, for some reason, there's probably something that's blocking me. And so I'll bring that up as a question with Julie. And then if I am coding for a bit, it's probably something new that I'm learning. So I know at one point I was really interested in learning Git. And so Julie sent me a research on how to do branching. And so we just practiced that together in a paired programming style. And that was a lot of fun. Or like trying to get better at some web dev stuff and showing what I have so far and doing a code walk and then trying to work on something that I was a little bit uncomfortable with and just talking about how I would approach it and how Julie would look for resources and things like that. I will say that knowing what your code does is a pro move because, I mean, commonly, I write code all the time. (laughs) Where I'm like, this works. Can't tell you why. Can't tell you how. I just know it works. Can't explain it. Can't say anything else about it. Don't touch it ever. Just leave it there. It will work. (laughs) So the fact that at this level, you're already like making sure that you understand each line, like that'll make you a really good programmer. Just like making sure that you understand your code, you'd be surprised how many people don't. I just said that today to a coworker. I don't know what this does, but it's working. Yeah. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. It works. Just trust me on this. Yeah. Well, we are about out of time. Megan, do you want to tell people where they can find you online? I guess you're not looking for a job yet, but you will be in the future, right? Maybe you'll come back for that. 
Sure. Yeah. I'm not on social media very much, but I have a LinkedIn. And so I'm connected with Julie on LinkedIn. And then I GitHub is at Git-Megan. Nice. Well, cool. This was fun. I wish you the best in your Java adventures. Sure, that'll be great. Java is fun. Once you get Java, you'll get it. You'll be good. So good luck on that. Good luck on everything. And to everyone else, catch you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.